But if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 23. Uh, and if at this time, if you're able, would you rise as we read God's word together? Matthew 7, 13 to 23. Um, I'll read this for us. If you could reply with thanks be to God. Uh, I'll say this is the word of the Lord at the end. If you could resp- uh, re- respond with thanks be to God. Uh, and after reading it, I, ho- I hope you are thankful to God for these words because they are quite difficult today. Um, but then I'll pray for us and I'll seat you after the reading. This is Jesus speaking the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy uh, tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you. Thanks be to God for these words. Lord, we know they appear to be harsh. We know, Lord, that they appear to be very stern, but Lord, may we see now, would you give us a vision to see that these words are packed full of love. They're dense, full of love. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, and help us at this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. All right, let's talk about three points. All right, three points. Uh, The first point is called wake up. Uh, The second point is called do the word, and then the final point is called run the race. And uh, I don't know if you guys have watched Cars 3. There's a song called Run the Race. My son loves that song, so I entitled the point in honor of his love for this song, Run the Race. Run the race. No? Nobody? Okay, just me. All right, let's dive into our first point. Um, I used to get really, really angry at my parents because um, they used to parent my older brother and me very differently. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced that where maybe you're, you have a sibling, a brother, sister, and they treat your brother or your sister very differently than, than they treat you, and you think it's so unfair. Well, I, that was my whole childhood growing up. Uh, let me give you an example. When my brother became a junior and senior in high school, my mom bought for him a brand new Chevy Blazer. They don't make these cars anymore, okay? Uh, he drove this car into the ground, all right? He uh, only drove this car for 18 months, Okay, his junior and senior year, and yet he drove it about 36,000 miles, okay? And, and mind you, I did the math on this. That, that amounts to 24,000 miles a year, okay? An average person, even if you drive to work from Bothell to Amazon uh, to South Lake Union every single day, you'd maybe amount to about 12,000 to 15,000 a year. My brother drove 24,000 miles in one year. And by the way, we lived in Hawaii on an island. I don't know where he was going. In addition, right, my brother got this brand new cell phone. He got a Nokia, one of those old school phones where you could change the plate on the face and and do all sorts of nice things to it. Back in the day, you could only have a certain amount of minutes. Today, it's unlimited. Everything's unlimited, right? But back in the day, you could only have like 100 minutes or 200 minutes. But my brother would talk. He would be given 200 minutes, but he would talk for like 400 minutes on the phone. 
And, and my parents, here's the thing. My parents never, ever said anything to my brother. Well, I mean, they brought it up occasionally, especially when it cost them a lot of money. But the driving, the gas, uh, even my brother would stay out to like 3 or 4 a.m. all the time. And my parents never said anything to him. And I was like, my goodness, this is a nice life. So when I became a junior and a senior, I thought, okay, here it comes for me too. Like, I'm going to have a great life. I'm going to drive around the island everywhere. I'm going to stay out late at night. And as soon as my mom passed me the key, she said this to me. She said, you be home at midnight every night. I was like, what? I was like, but Thomas got to stay out to 3 or 4 a.m. She said, you come home midnight. And so I was a good boy. I listened. I went home at, uh, every night, midnight, right? I would come home. And if I was 30 minutes late, my mom would be sitting there in a huff and a puppy, like, where were you? You didn't call. You didn't text. That's why I gave you the cell phone, right? Blah, blah. In fact, for me, I, I had to be under the 200 minutes because my dad, I don't know if you remember, the, the minutes sometimes would be shared. And so my dad would use all the minutes, but I didn't get to use any of the minutes. Uh, and, and, and even at that, like, I would try to give my friends rides around, and she would question why I had to give so many of my friends rides around town. And I thought, this is so unfair. You never did this for Thomas, but you only do it to me. Why? Well, of course, now I'm a parent. I have three kids, and I understand, okay? I understand this now as being a parent, that you have to parent your children differently. And it's not because your values are different, but rather because each child, there's a different context. There's a different person behind the values. And so in order for you to parent them well, you have to change your parenting from child to child. And so if you've experienced this kind of parenting, it's, in my opinion, it's actually really good parenting to not parent every child the same exact way. And here's why. Okay, my older brother was a wild stallion, meaning this, that if you told my brother go east, just on purpose, he would go west. If you told my brother to jump up, he would sit right down just to show you that he doesn't want to listen to you. And so my parents knew that if they told him, hey, come home by midnight, my brother wouldn't come home at all. And so the fact that he came home at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. was like, whoo, he's home. Praise the Lord. The fact that my brother uh, actually told my parents that he had a phone bill, that to, that to them was a success. But for me, you know, me, I, I grew up a really good kid. I, I was the good boy my whole life. Um, when I was eight years old, I won a Bible contest because I knew the Bible so well at church. You know, when I was a high schooler, I was a part of a faith, a campus faith group, and I was the leader of this campus faith group. When I was at church, I was our youth group president. Like, I was, you know, and so my parents knew that they could tell these things to me, and they knew that I would listen and obey. And so the context for these things were different. Uh, were different. And the reason why I say this is because I think when we read this passage, we have to see that Jesus is doing the very same thing here, that he's parenting his, his children very differently. He's parenting his children a, di a bit differently because he knows something. He knows that his different children need different things from him. And so for those of you who are not Christians, I want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're worshiping with us. Um, and this passage we're about to study has historically been used and lodged against the non-believer. Where you may have heard these kinds of sermons. Hey, the way is narrow, the, the, but the gate to destruction is wide. Believe in Jesus or else you'll go to hell. Right? And, and maybe you were feared into believing into Jesus. And yet, I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. Because look at what, look at what he says in verse 13 here. Let, let's first read the words of Jesus in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy uh, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are, uh, by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But here's what I've read in every commentary, okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 7, 13, which is where our passage starts, 
all the way down actually to verse 27, which is where he talks about the rock and the sand and building your life on, on, on foolish things or wise things, right? This is actually one section of teaching. We're not covering verse 24 to 27 because if you remember in sermon one of the series back in January 1, 2023, I actually preached on Matthew 7, 24 to 27. I preached on the end first. But, but if you look at 13 to 20, uh, 27, it's actually one section and Jesus is basically making the same point three different times. But look at what he says here in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what is he talking about here? What is he doing? He's actually not talking to the unbeliever. He's talking to the believer. If you're a Christian in here, he's talking to you. I'm a Christian. He's talking to me. In verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets. Who should beware of false prophets? People who don't go to church or people who go to church? Of course, people who go to church because we come across prophets all the time, priests, pastors, all of these things. We come across these people. This is why we should beware. This passage is actually geared towards his believing children. And so you see this warning has nothing to do with the unbeliever. He's not trying to scare the non-believer into believing him by threatening hell. Rather, Jesus is warning believers. And here's what Jesus is warning us of. He's saying this. Christian, wake up. Wake up. Stop being apathetic. Stop being so sleepy about your faith. Do you understand what's at stake? Do you understand what's at stake? And so you see, Jesus is not using fear. He's just saying, wake up. Look, 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 wake up. I need you to see this right now. There's eternal things at stake. I know you see reality every day through your vision, through your tunnel vision. You see the physical things every day, but wake up and look at the spiritual realities. There are eternal uh, things at stake. Look, I, I, I don't like giving these kinds of messages, but this is what the Bible is speaking to. This is what Jesus is saying, and so don't shoot the messenger. If you want to take it up with somebody, take it up with Jesus Christ. He's the boss, okay? But look at what he says. Let's read 21 to 23 again. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What he's saying here is simple, Christian. He's saying that you could be surprised on judgment day. He's saying we could be surprised. That we could go to heaven and we could stand before the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus says, I, I don't know you. What are you talking about? I don't know who you are. And I think Jesus is asking us this. Look, if you call yourself a Christian, wake up and ask yourself, are you really following Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Are you building your house on rock or on sand? Will you be surprised on judgment day? Because here's what we know. Non-believers, they're not going to be surprised on judgment day. If they find themselves in an afterlife and they're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to be like, oh, I know what's coming right now. I, I was wrong. But, but for believers, we're going to think, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to enter in, aren't I? And Jesus is going to say, I, I don't know you. But look, look, listen, listen, okay. I think the reason why Jesus is being so harsh and he's giving a warning is not because he hates us, not because he despises us, but because he loves 
And I want, I want you to see the love that's just pouring forth from this passage, okay? I want you to see it because it's saturated with love, okay? And one of the people that Jesus loves so much is he loves the non-believer so, so much. And he knows that their eternities are at stake. In fact, he says it at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He knows, look, if, if we Christians, if believers, we get this right, if we get the Sermon on the Mount right, right, go back to January 1st, right, read through the whole Sermon on the Mount, go listen to the sermons. If we get the Sermon on the Mount right, here's what Jesus knows, that we are going to draw non-believers to him, that non-believers will actually glorify Christ because of the way we live. And Jesus knows what's at stake. In fact, this is what he literally says at the beginning of, of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 13. Remember, Sermon on the Mount is 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. In chapter 5, look at what he says. It'll be up here on the screens. He says, you, that's us, Christians, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's foot. And then he goes on, right? He talks about the light. He says, verse 14, you... Christians, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that what? So that who? They, they, they. Who's they? They are the unbelievers. They are the people who don't know Jesus, so that they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see what's at stake here, Christian? What's at stake here is our witness to a watching world, a world that's looking at you as ambassador of Christ and saying, tell me more about Jesus by your life. And this is why Jesus is being so harsh. It's because of love. It's because so much is at stake. People's eternities are at stake. And it's partly dependent upon how you and I choose to live our lives. Do we say yes to the Sermon on the Mount or do we say, no, 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 Jesus, I'm just going to ignore you for the rest of my life. In addition, Christian, look at me and pay attention here. Jesus loves you too. And this is why he's saying it. Look, a lot of people ask me, what is hell? What is hell? What is hell? Right? And what we know is this, right? The Bible gives so many imageries about hell. And these images sometimes contradict each other, but they're not contradicting each other. What Jesus is trying to do with these images is he's just trying to give us a sense. This is not what hell is really like, in other words. And so we see in the Bible that there are images of fire, there are images of darkness, there are images of suffering. There are all these images. But what we know is this, fire and darkness do not coexist. If there's fire, there's going to be light. And so that's why we know that these are images or metaphors of what, of what hell will be like. But what we do know is this. Every single time, vastly, the majority of the time hell is talked about, is always talked about separation from Jesus. In fact, in the passage, he says, depart from me. Get out of here. You're not, you're not entering the kingdom. And this is why Jesus loves you. He's saying, look, I died on a cross for you. I gave you my life. I want to be with you. But at the end of time, I'm going to have to say, you don't actually know me. In fact, you're probably not going to even want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And you're, you're going to want to separate yourself from me. And so Jesus wants to live with you for all of eternity. He wants to be with you for all of eternity. And he's saying, look, pay attention. Wake up, Christians. Jesus looks into our church as a future. He looks at the New Life Fellowship. He looks into our future and he sees a road that he doesn't, not, he doesn't want us to go down. And so he's warning us now. And he's telling us now. Look, as you probably know by now, if you've been a part of our church, you know that, um, like, I love my kids. But there's one child that I love more than all my kids. It's my daughter, Emily. And uh, I love her so much. And um, 
I, I probably should stop saying that because then my, my boys will grow up thinking that I don't love them. I do love them. I love them a lot. But one of the things that I've done very early on with my daughter, she's only a year and a half old now, is I've never said no to her. Literally everything she wants, I say, yes, yes. What can, what can daddy get you? More ice cream? Okay, here you go. My boys are like, can we get ice cream? I'm like, no, get out of here. You, you know, you, you little, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> like, I won't give my boys, and I'll tell them no all the time. But, but, my, but my baby, like, I, yes, yes. In fact, I don't think we gave our sons ice cream till they were like two or three years old. But like with my daughter, Emily, I gave her, I think I gave her ice cream at like eight or nine months. Because like my boys were eating it and she was like, like she like wanted it. So I was like, okay, here you go. And my wife was like, what are you doing? You're crazy. I'm like, yeah, I'm crazy in love with her, you know. But anyhow, so I've been, I've been saying yes and yes and yes. But one of the things that we've been noticing is that my daughter is getting more and more, um, I don't know how you put it, but she's getting really selfish. <laughs> And recently, like one incident, like we, our, our boys were eating yogurt. It was kind of a sweeter yogurt, but we're like, hey, no, you can't have this. And she literally threw herself on the floor and just started crying. And in that moment, I literally, I, I went to the future and I was like, oh my goodness, what if this is her future? What if she grows up being this spoiled, entitled Asian American girl who just cannot handle anything thrown at her? And, and so life, because life is going to get very disappointing. Life is hard. And so even the smallest things are going to crush her again and again. And I'm not actually helping her um, uh, by coddling her so much, by actually uh, building the kind of uh, tenacity she needs inside to, to, to weather the storms of life. And I saw her being crushed uh, by, by boys, by jobs, by different things in the future. And I was like, man, this can't be. Like, I, I've got to do something now. And so for the first time, I told my daughter, no, you cannot have that. And she broke down. She was crying. And, and now I've been kind of disciplining her. I'm like, okay, you can cry all you want, but daddy's not going to give it to you. And it breaks my heart. It's so hard to watch my daughter cry and scream and yell. But I know, I know that I'm doing something for her today that will mean something for her future. And I believe Jesus is doing the same exact thing. He sees our future. He sees our tomorrow. And he's being stern with us now so that he can shape our tomorrows. And look, in, in, we're going to move on to point number two. But I'm going to come back to this question for you Christians. What does Jesus want from us then? But for now, what I want to do in point number two is I want to go back and address the non-believer again and ask this question, okay? What would Jesus say to the non-believer then? Or what would he say? And I think... The Gospels are full of pictures and stories of what Jesus says to non-believers and how he interacts with them. If you remember, right, in, in Matthew chapter 8, there's a story of a Roman centurion. We'll study this later in the future. And, and what the Roman centurion is a non-believer, but he has like this much faith. He just says, hey, Jesus, like all you have to do is say the words and my daughter's healed. And Jesus is like, whoa, dude, that is amazing faith. Like that's, that's not even that crazy. Haven't you read that story? You're like, that's not that crazy. But Jesus like praises him for his faith. It's like that small, but he's like, oh my goodness. Do you guys remember in Matthew chapter 13, there's a Canaanite woman who like just says like, hey, like I, I know you're, you're called to the lost sheep of Israel, but you can even feed the dogs. She calls herself a dog. And, and Jesus like, whoa. He's like, you got faith, woman. It's like that small, but he like commends her for her faith. In John chapter 8, if you remember, there's a story of an adulterous woman who's brought before all these people to this tribunal and everyone's ready to throw stones at her. And Jesus says, who's without sin cast the first stone? And he looks at her and he says, no one condemns you. Go now and sin no more. He forgives her and he sends her away and says, sin no more. If you remember in John 4, he tells a Samaritan woman who's not a believer, he says, look, here's the truth about you. You have five husbands and none of them are your husbands. And, and, but guess what? Even though you've been sinning, living water is for you. 
Forgiveness is for you. Eternal life is for you. Come and drink. And then so she gets so motivated, she goes out to the village and she tells everyone about Jesus. And then in Luke 15, if you remember the famous stories, right? Three successive stories, back to back to back. A lost coin, a lost sheep, and then a lost son. And what does he do in every single example? In every single story, what does Jesus do? He goes out and he gets the lost thing. That's what Jesus would say to you. He's going out and he's going to get you. And he loves you and he cares about you. In fact, that story that he ends with about the prodigal son, the son goes and he wastes all of his money away and the father receives him. He puts a cloak on him. He puts a ring on him. He kills a fattened calf for him. And he throws this huge celebration for his son. And then the older brother, the religious brother, says, what about me? And literally he says in the scriptures, I didn't even get a goat. Like you gave him a ring, a robe, all the right? Jesus parents differently. Jesus parents differently. Jesus is harshest in the Gospels with his, with his disciples. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, he calls uh, Peter. What does he call Peter? He's like, get behind me, Satan. I'm like, dude, Jesus, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> Who does Jesus warn and use harsh language against? The Pharisees, the believers. In John 6, if you remember, there's a story where, like, there's all these people who claim to follow Jesus. They're like, oh, dude, Jesus, we follow you, man. We follow you. And, and he starts saying some crazy stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, he's like, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. And they're like, what? Like, yeah, yeah, you got to literally eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're like, oh, spiritually? He's like, no, 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 literally. You got to eat it and drink it. They're like, uh-uh, no, thank you, Jesus. And they walk away. And Jesus is like, bye-bye, see you later. You weren't really my followers anyway. So what does Jesus want from us as Christians? Let's ask this question, okay? What does he want? What does he want with us? Look with me at verse 21 again. He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's the people who won't enter. It's the people who talk a lot. People who just say, Lord, Lord. Okay, but look at, he says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's who's going to enter in. The people who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not the people who just talk. And in fact, look at all the three examples. Jesus is not against charismatics, right? Casting out demons, prophesying, right? Miracles, right? He's not against charismatic. He's against people who just talk a big game. But don't do the will of the Father. Look what he says, right? In verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in what? Your name. And cast out demons in your name. And do many, many works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, Jesus is not against charismatics. Jesus is actually against people who talk but don't ever do. He's against people who talk and don't do. And this makes sense in light of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let's go back. Let's do a quick review of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything Jesus has been telling us is to do the commands, do the commands, do the commands, do the commands. He's been telling us command, command, command. And he's asking us to do them. Why would he give us all these commands so that we just don't have to do them ever? Look, look, let's just do a quick, quick. I'm going to try to fly by this, okay? Look, Matthew 5, the beginning, right? They may see your good works. Matthew 5, 19, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. Matthew 5.24, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Matthew 5.34, do not take an oath at all. Matthew 5.39, do not resist the one who is evil. Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.48, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. You, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Do not heap up empty phrases. When you fast... 
right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not be anxious about your life. Therefore, do not be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God. Judge not. Ask, seek, knock, and you will find. These are all commands. Jesus wants us to do the will of the Father, not just know them. If even you look at our passage today, look at verse, chapter 7, verse 6. He says, you will recognize these false prophets by what? Their fruits, by their works. In uh, chapter 7, verse 21, at the end there, he says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Chapter 7, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Chapter 7, verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. I don't know how much clearer Jesus can get. He's like, do the will, do the will, do the will, do the will. But here's what's interesting, right? In Christianity, we've come up with this crazy idea that it's just about knowing the right stuff. Just know, 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 know the right stuff, know the right stuff, know the right stuff. And don't get me wrong, I believe that you have to know the right stuff. Don't get me wrong about that. That's what we teach you every Sunday. you got to know the right stuff. But Jesus is far more interested in not you knowing the stuff, but you doing the stuff. Let me put it like this. He, he's far more interested in not you knowing every verse on humility. He's far more interested in somebody who does, is a humble person. Jesus is not so interested in the fact that you can recite the Lord's prayer. He's far more interested in somebody who actually prays. Jesus is far more interested not in you knowing the depths of the theological discussions of the sovereignty of God and the nature of it. Rather, Jesus is far more interested in this simple question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me with your money, with your finances, with your time, with your personality, with everything? Do you trust me? I've met pastors and theologians and scholars who can plumb the depths of the Bible and theology. But you know what? We're jerks. You can know so much about the Bible and yet be a jerk. I've met people who can tell me why evangelism is so important. They can recite to me Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you. They can memorize it. They can tell it to you. They write it on their walls, and they've never told a single person about Jesus. And yet, man, can I highlight somebody at our church? Actually, can I highlight two people at our church? There's a guy named, I don't even know if he's here. I don't know if he's our last service or if he's listening online, but Kevin. Kevin Fukuhara, man, this guy is on fire. Kevin Fukuhara is a new Christian. And man, I've just been so encouraged by him. He came out to Alpha. He's like, hey man, but can you send me the videos? Because he's like, can I just do Alpha on my own with all my non-believing friends? I was like, dude, that's crazy. In fact, that's why I asked him to serve this Alpha because he was so on fire. Like he just, and I don't know, I don't know Kevin, I don't know if Kevin knows Matthew 28 by heart or not. I don't know. But I can tell you this, I know what he knows. He knows that Jesus is amazing, Jesus changed his life, and he wants as many people as humanly possible to know Jesus. And so he goes out, he literally invites all these people. We're like, dang, man, Kevin's on fire. Shanae, Shanae Kim, she's another one. Man, you know what, she's had a hard life, but you know what? Man, she loves Jesus. And she's been telling, like, everybody, like, she's literally like, hey, like, I, I didn't think uh, people would, like, respond. She's like, I, you know, like, I, but I just felt like I had to share with them. She's like, hey, do you want to come to Alpha? And this person was like, yeah, sure. She kind of just told them, hey, Alpha is like this place where you can, in, you know, kind of talk about your faith and what you believe. And we'll just kind of share with what Christianity is all about. Uh, do you want to come? And, and the first person was like, yes. And then so that gave her courage. So she was like, oh, wow. People, like my prayers are answered. Jesus is actually working. I'll go ask this next person. So she asked the next and they said yes. And then she asked another person. They said yes. And then she asked another person. They said yes. She brought like four people to Alpha. I don't know if she's memorized Matthew 28. But I know she's living it. 
Jesus is so interested in not what you know. Of course, you got to know the right things, but he's far more interested in the fact that you live it out, that you do the word. This leads us to our third and final point, run the race. Look, this is why Jesus says in verse 15 now, let's, let's study this portion. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you know who these false prophets are, what they were teaching? I'll make it very clear for you. They were basically teaching people, don't do the commandments. It's okay. And I actually think Jesus is talking about a more heightened version of what was happening in Matthew chapter 5, verses 19. Because he kind of talks about this at the beginning of the sermon too. Do you remember this? Right in Matthew 5, 19, it'll be up here on the screens for you. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see who these false teachers are? I think they, they were people who were basically telling people, you don't got to do the works. You just got to believe. Just believe. You don't got to do anything though. And I think Jesus is calling them false teachers. And you know how you know? Because of their fruits, by what they actually do. And let me ask you this. Do you teach people to relax the commandments? Like, do you say things like this? Because I've certainly said it before. Ah, I know, it's tough. But it's okay, God forgives you. It's okay, it's okay. Or maybe somebody struggles, is struggling with an addiction or something, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I struggle with that too, so that's okay. You're like, basically, you're giving them permission to do it again. You're like, hey, Jesus is basically speaking against that. He's like, don't do that. I want my followers to actually follow me and do the commandments. Stop saying that it's okay. Do you know what the Apostle Paul calls that? He, you know what, what he calls that kind of gospel or that kind of grace? I'm going to say kind of maybe a bad word here, but this is literally biblical language, okay? We call this hell no grace. Hell no. You know why? Because that's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. Right? He says this in Romans 6. He says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. And that word, by no means, the Bible translators were trying to be nice. My Bible professor, my New Testament uh, professor would always say this. He would say, that phrase is way better translated, hell no. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Hell no. <laughs> Look, some of you may think, you know, like, Eric, are you saying that we're saved by our works? And I'm saying, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know me. I preach the gospel of forgiveness every single week. I preach Christ crucified on a cross. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you treat grace in this abusive way, what I'm saying is that you don't have the right knowledge about the gospel right now. I'm saying that you actually don't understand the gospel. The grace you received from Jesus was not designed for you to abuse it. It was meant to propel you into greater works. It was meant you to uh, uh, propel you into greater righteousness, far exceeding that of the Pharisees. Look, the best illustration I could think of this was two weeks ago, I talked about these two individuals, um, uh, uh, Franciszek Gajonicek and Maximilian Kolbe. If you don't remember the story, let me refresh your memory. Uh, during World War II in the Jewish concentration camps, uh, they had this rule where if a, Jew, a Jewish person ran away or escaped the prison, they would kill 10 Jews, 
altogether. And so one time a Jew escaped. Uh, they rallied all 10 people together. They chose them at random. And one of the people there was a guy by the name of Franciszek Gajniczek. And Franciszek Gajniczek screams at the top of his lungs. He says, you know, like, I, I, you know, I can't die. I can't die. My, my wife and my kids who will take care of them. And, and so Maximilian Kolbe steps forward and he says, I'll take your place. And he takes his place. He dies in his place. And, and what happens ab- after the concentration camps are over is what we think would have happened which is this guy, Francisca Gajonicza, goes back home and he loves his wife till the day she dies. He passes away after her, but she passes away first, but he loved her till the day he di- she died. And he loved and he was a great father to both of his sons. And, and, and man, he went around spreading the name of Maximilian Kolbe everywhere he went. Even when Maximilian Kolbe was up for sainthood in the Catholic Church, he went there and he spoke on his behalf. Now, let me ask you a hypothetical question, okay? Hypothetically speaking, let me ask you this. Imagine with me, okay, Francisca Gajonicza, the war ends, the concentration camps are over, he goes back home, and he divorces his wife, he abandons his two kids, and he lives only for himself. As a man, personally, you know what I would do? Just like thinking about it, like he didn't do it, but I'm just like thinking about it, I would slap him in the face. I'd be like, bro, do you understand like what was given for you? Do you understand the gift that this guy gave you, and you're going to squander it on living a selfish life now? He literally died for you so that you could be a great husband, a great father to these kids. He didn't want you to spread his name, but he wanted you to at least be a good father and a good good husband uh, to the children and to the wife that you have. And do you not see that this is, he would have a false view of grace. He would have a false view of this gift that was given to him if he squandered it. And do you not see, friends, that this is us? We don't understand the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. Do you understand that what we were given, we were given death. We should have had nothing but the death, uh, the penalty of death upon us. We should have had nothing but hell and the wrath of God upon us. But Jesus Christ took our place, just like Maximilian Kolbe did for Franciszek. He took his place, and in the same way, what do we do? All we do is we think, okay, now how can I have the best life humanly possible, have luxury, retirement, relax for the rest of my life, instead of using this freedom for God's glory? you see why Jesus is so harsh? He's like, look, you don't understand my grace, what it's meant for. It's not meant so you can squander it. It's meant so that you could live into it. The Friends, the message I'm giving is not anti-gospel. It is the very essence of the gospel. It is not in opposition to grace. It is the kind of life we should be living in light of the grace given to us. So here, Christian, let me clarify this, okay? Of course, of course, we're forgiven by God's grace. And of course, we're going to sin again. And I'm not giving you permission to sin, but I'm saying, of course, even the Bible says this. Right? Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. Look what John the Apostle says. He says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then look at what he says in verse 10. This is really interesting. He says, if we say we have not sinned. We make him a liar. So he's saying, look, you're going to sin, and you are a sinner. And if you say you don't have sin and you're not going to sin, most likely you're a liar. <laughs> and his word is not in us. So we are going to sin. And when we come back to Christ, he is going to forgive us, of course. But here now, this is how you know you understand the gospel. It's not that you, re- uh, that, not that you become perfect, but rather that you make progress in your faith, friends. Look what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, practice these things. What are these things? He's talking about holiness, righteousness. 
practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see what your perfection? No, your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He's talking about the teaching of righteousness, of forgiveness, of holiness. He says, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Meaning that you're, you're, because he's a pastor and he's preaching to these people. He's saying, look, the more and more your life is godly, the more and more it's actually going to reflect in your people. You're going to save them too. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I'm not perfect. Neither have I claimed to be perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He's talking about holiness and righteousness. He's talking about Christ because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so my question is not, are you perfect? My question is, are you straining? Are you struggling? Are you running? Are you trying to enter the narrow gate? That word for narrow in the Greek means literally to oppress, to be compressed. Are are you walking the narrow path and are you compressing your life in such a way to walk the narrow path? But here's what Jesus promises us. He says, yeah, the path is narrow. It's kind of tight. It's like a little bit like hard. But he says, it leads to life. I promise you, yeah, you're going to scrunch yourself down. You're going to make yourself confined, but it leads to life. But the way that's broad and large, man, it's, it's large. You can move around. You can do whatever you want. But, but it leads towards destruction. Following Jesus is hard. You will be persecuted for your faith. You will sacrifice. It will be uncomfortable. But there is where you will find true freedom. There is where you will find true life, Jesus says. And so Jesus is not asking us to be perfect. He's asking us to utilize his grace continuously to persevere, to continue running the race, to continue to grow in your discipleship, to continue to make more lives, uh, to make more of your life uncomfortable so that other people can know Jesus. Look, friends, let me try to make this very practical for us. I I really think Jesus makes this practical for us. If you look, he says, beware of false prophets. But I think in turn, he's also saying, look, if there are true prophets, run to them. Stick close to these true prophets. And I call them prophets, but, but really, it could be us. And, and what, what distinguishes these kinds of people? It's the people who not only teach or who actually live God, but they're fruits. They have fruits in their lives. They have works. In other words, the best teacher, the best prophets are not the ones who teach well. It's the one who live well. In other words, these are people who can model for us what the Bible is saying. Like, haven't you noticed sometimes you, you, you ask these questions like, man, like, how do I glorify Jesus in my workplace? Like, I'm an accountant. I crunch numbers all day. Like, how do I glorify Jesus in this? Or like, how do, I, how do I worship God in my marriage that's incredibly different? We have such different personalities. We fight all the time. And, and even though we have crazy differences, we're trying to work it out. But it's still so hard. How do I glorify God with this marriage? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going through this crazy tragedy. And people tell me I have to worship God in this tragedy. But I can't right now. Like, how do I do that? And you have all these questions. And here's where modeling helps. If you find somebody who can model that for you, man, so many questions are answered. You find an accountant, man, and there's another Christian accountant who's like doing their work and they're like worshiping at their work. They're like, yeah, dude. Like, you're like, tell me how you did that. Or you see somebody struggling in their marriage, they're fighting all the time, but man, they're still working it. And you ask them, like, what are you doing? I know you fight a lot, but man, you still love each other and you're still fighting for each other. Tell me how you do it. Or you see somebody who's deep in tragedy, but man, they're still filled with joy. And you're like, hey, tell me how you do it. We have these models and I think he's telling us to stick close to them. We need to find other Christians who can model this stuff for us because I think modeling is the best teacher. 
You know, this is a silly example, but um, in my golf game right now, I've, I've been so frustrated, okay? And one of the things I recently came upon was this fact that I don't have to have such a big backswing, okay? If you don't understand golf, that's fine. But basically, you have a backswing, and then you come forward, right? You hit the ball, right? Uh, in my backswing, uh, I try to, I, I'm trying to, like, destroy the ball. I want it to go really, really far, so I, like, try to wind up really big and bring my arm all the way back here, right? But actually, they say that, actually, that's not good, uh, especially for a big guy like me. I don't have flexibility. And so there are some models out there. There's a guy named uh, 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 Tony Finau. Um, there's a guy named John Ram. These guys are, are, they drive the ball like 300 yards, 300 plus yards. They're, they're beasts when it comes to driving the ball. But their backswing just looks like this. They just do that. And you're like, what? Why did the ball go 300 yards? And, and, and so people were, I, I, I was researching these guys, but then people were like, oh, you know what, Eric, though? They're six foot two, though. You're only five foot eight. <laughs> like, uh, like Tony Finau is like six four. And, um, and so they're like, that's why they can have a, a short backswing. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. But then, but then I discovered this guy named Harold Varner III. If you don't know, he's, he's not as well-known of a golfer, but he's, uh, but he's short, he's stocky like me, he's only 5'9". But his backswing looks like this. And he drives the ball like 300 yards. So I was like, yes, I found my model. I'm going to watch his videos. And that's all I've done. I've watched his videos because I'm trying to learn how to shorten my backswing. He models to show you that this is possible. Look, and I think this is the solution for all of us. We need to find these models in our lives. You know, for me personally, I'll kind of bring it personal for myself, but, you know, for, uh, and, and still to this day, I go back and forth on this. Like, I, I know I've, I've made decisions on this, but I go back and forth sometimes. But sometimes I think, oh, man, you know, to be a good leader, you have to be a jerk. You have to be aggressive. Like, I've never seen a leader who's just like, hey, guys, like, can you do this, you know? Like, all the leaders I know come into a room, they're like, hey, I want those reports by 5 a.m., done. You know, and th that's what I think, you know, and I'm like, okay, I got to be that then. Um, but as you know, Tim Keller, who's one of my, just my heroes of the faith and one of the pastors that I've read, I've listened to almost everything he's ever done. And, you know, as I was reflecting upon his life and his death over and over again, Tim Keller being, of course, one of the greatest leaders, one of the greatest pastors, again and again and again, everything that comes out of this man is nothing but compassion, grace, and kindness. And man, I, I, I've been so encouraged by the life of Tim Keller, not because of his teaching and his preaching. I would say this by far. Of course, his teaching and preaching helped me so much. And, and that's why I have three points. I'm trying to mimic Tim Keller, you know. Uh, that's why I do what I do. I'm trying to be like Tim Keller, right? But, but, but at the end of the day, what he's done for me is he's shown me that it is possible to be a great leader and not to compromise who you are. And, and man, like, you know, at, our pre, at my previous church, uh, there was a, a woman who started coming to our church, she actually worked with Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian. And this was 10 years ago. And this is when a lot of pastors were coming out and they were like jerks and all of the pastors were making headlines. And so I asked her, I remember asking her because she was like the community groups director at Redeemer. And I said, hey, like, um, like tell me about Tim Keller. Like, is he a jerk? Like, he, he must be somewhat of a jerk in the office. She was like, she's like, Eric, I'm telling you right now, he's the real deal. Um, like, he's, he's been so supportive and he walks around to offices and he'll pray with people. He'll talk to people, even those are like hundreds of staff members. Like he'll get into your life. He's in, like, and in fact, this particular woman was invited to his house. She was mentored by Kathy Keller, his wife, and, and, and he would pour into her. He was the real deal. In fact, uh, when I was on the plane, I, I heard about this last week as I was getting on the plane to Arizona. And uh, Pastor Clara actually sent us uh, an article. And basically the whole article was about how Tim Keller never complained 
And literally, I kid you not, at that moment, as I was reading that article, I was like complaining about people in my life. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I, Tim Keller wants me to love Jesus more. Like, he makes me want to love him more and follow him more. You know, at his last um, sermon that he gave, um, he gave a little speech, actually. And he recorded it the very day he passed away. And he recorded it for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And I went back and I watched this video. It's about 10 minutes long. But his last point was simply this. He said, don't think about your reputation. And he literally said this. He said, pastors. He said, pastors, don't think about your reputation. And like, I was like, oh. I was like, oh, my heart, like, it's breaking right now. Like, everything he's saying is so true. And But you know, the thing is, that, that message itself is not that profound if you think about it. But because I knew who it was coming from, a man of character, I was like, man, my heart broke. I was like, man, I don't, I got to be like that. And I see it in his life. I mean, if you look at Keller's life, he never once tried to get on social media. He never tried to wear cool sneakers. He never tried to get on TV. He wasn't trying to be famous. He wasn't trying to be popular. He just... He was thrust into the scene because of what he was doing for Jesus. He never cared about his reputation. He always stewarded it to the best he could for God's glory and for Jesus' glory. More than his sermons, his life is becoming such an encouragement to love and follow Jesus all the days of my life. And look, there are so many people even at this church right now who are such encouragements to me. There's a woman at our church and, you know, she gave up a high-paying job so she could save her soul. She, she literally gave up such a high-paying job, such a rewarding job, such a job that had so much going for her, but because it was taking away her soul. In fact, she gave up a big bonus because, because she could quit sooner than later. That's how much this job was sucking away her soul. There are dentists in the church who, without telling anybody, just randomly go to Mexico City and just start missions work. And I've told them repeatedly, hey, can you tell me about it so I can highlight you here? And they're like, please don't highlight us. We just want to do this work. That's it. Just pray for us. That's it. That's the only reason we tell you. There are the elders of our church who serve and sacrifice so much that you don't see week in and week out. Our elders do so much and they sacrifice so much and their hearts break for you, for this congregation. The countless of volunteers who serve and sacrifice week in and week out. And then after they serve, they come and worship. And some of you are sitting in this room. You serve, you serve, you serve. And then you say, I still want to worship Jesus. So you make it a priority to worship Jesus. And you stay all the day long. There's so many of you that are modeling this for us. And friends, we need to lean into each other and see how it is that God is working in our lives. And really see how other people are following Jesus and living out the Sermon on the Mount. Friends, I'm telling you, if we get this right, if we get the Sermon on the Mount right, this church, New Life Fellowship, will be salt and light. People, non-believers, will give glory to God in heaven, not because of the sermons, not because of the worship, but because of who we are as a church, because of your character, because of your goodness, the goodness that God is working through you and into our workplaces, our cities, our jobs, into everywhere, so we can truly change people's lives for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, after a sermon like this, I, I find myself immediately going to repentance once again. <clears throat> and Lord, I pray that, that the unfaithfulness that I've shown to you, God, by worshiping the idols of this world, God, even this ministry, God, has been an idol for me. God, I repent and I come back to you. 
and I ask for you to forgive me, to wash me clean, and to set me on the right path again. And Lord, I assume that there are so many in this place, God, who are praying the same prayer, God, a prayer of confession. And so we pray that collectively together here, God, we repent and we're sorry, God, that we have not found all of ourselves in you. And so, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? And would you lead us to the path everlasting? And Lord, would you help us now through the power of your son, Jesus Christ, through the grace given to us through his cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you help us now to receive that grace and to live out righteous lives, God, not because we try harder, but because we've understood, God, that we've been given something so radical, so good, God, your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we give our whole lives unto you. We devote ourselves unto you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.